Hi, everybody. Welcome back to This Would Know. If you're watching on Patreon, welcome back. We had some technical difficulties, but we figured it all out. If you are listening wherever you get your podcasts, you don't know what that means <laughs> because history is written by the victors. And we have conquered the internet so we can make the truth whatever we want it to be. Welcome back. And I'm a little scared now. That's part of the fun. <laughs> <laughs> and today on This Wooden O, we have an actor, a stage manager, a boxer, all-around badass, talented on a, dare I say, quixotic level. <laughs> it's Becca Kaplan. Hey, Becca. Hello. At least it wasn't on a Napoleonic level. <laughs> How's it going? Ah, things are good. Things are good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We uh, we were just talking before the show, mm-hmm. and not during any other moments that no. happened. That no, no. Um, oh, hi, friends. Oh, <laughs> this drink is gonna taste so good. Monty's here belly. with a well-deserved drink for no reason whatsoever. He just wanted one. <sighs> That's yes. right. Yeah. Nothing mm-hmm. happened. No Herculean struggle happened beforehand. Yeah. So you just fit. You just finished a show, yes. right? Yes, I did. So for those who do not know, Becca was our stage manager for Romeo and Juliet this summer as part of our Common series. Um, was incredibly capable and just wildly talented during the whole thing. What was? Uh, what's the last show that you just finished? So we. J- I just wrapped uh, Barefoot in the Park, uh, which was put up at Queen's Theater. Um, in the, I think it's called the Corona Park. It's the one by Met Stadium. Yeah, Corona Park. The Old World's Fair site? Yes. Yeah, that, their big globular statue is right in front of the theater. Oh, right yeah, on. Yeah. yeah. It's awesome. part of our directions of how to get there. Because guess what? It's a... 16 minute walk through the park. Yeah, I looked up I looked up how to get there from uh, from my house. I didn't have the time to make it out unfortunately, but I saw it I was like, "Oh, that's it's deep." Yeah. It's deep in the like park. I loved working there, but it's a track especially when you do 10 of 12s and I'm getting out at like midnight. Oh, jeez. Oh, yeah. yeah. Do they have a van or anything to bring you from the train? No. Oof. No. I know because wow. Titan Theater Company also works, it works there, out of there yeah. and Andrew Garrett, who's worked with us, is doing Christmas Carol with them mm-hmm. right now, and mm-hmm. they have a van. Oh, they got a van that takes so you? So you're going to let them know about the van. I yeah. got to put it in a complaint. <laughs> but how was the show? It was fantastic. Yeah? Um, yeah, I learned a lot of, worked with great people. I like I like shows that, um, I mean, it's a Neil Simon, so it's, it's funny, it's witty, but my director is very... Um, no, it's he's very cognizant and aware, and he's like, "Hey, this is great and funny. It's also a little racist and sexist. Let's change that." <laughs> <laughs> so, how did that process work when you came up against some not so subtle racism? How did you all like? How'd you address it? How'd you change it? Well, when uh, the first read through, we it was kind of given a blanket statement, like, "Hey, if you have a problem with any of these lines, mm-hmm. bring it up. Let's talk about it. Let's make sure." So a lot of like the racist ones we just cut because mm. they weren't um, they were throwaway jokes, as most stupid racism is. <laughs> like, so they weren't integral to anything that was going on in the show. They're just these stupid jokes. So he was like, "All right, let's just get rid of them." And also by there's this whole fight at the end where the husband comes home drunk and starts like propositioning her and in the movie it's quite rapey like mm. he is she's hiding herself and saying how scared she is and like 
So we just changed the blocking and, and made it more goofy. And like, he doesn't actually ever touch her. He doesn't even go after her. Like she's, and throughout the entire show, we have her being the person in charge and standing up for herself. So there's enough contacts choreography wise that I think it changed the tone. Yeah, it's so interesting because doing the plays of Shakespeare and his contemporaries, we never come up with uh, anything like racism or sexism. <laughs> I never have. I bet not. Very progressive. Or, yeah. No, not at all. I mean, as as a Kaplan, I've, I've noticed that the Jews are treated so well. Oh, yeah. 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 The Merchant of Venice is a, a wonderful play about the well-meaning <laughs> treatment of the Jewish people in that time. Yeah, yes. I mean, yeah. it's just a documentary. Yeah, it's just a documentary <laughs> yeah. of like how great a time everyone was having. What a time! I think that's actually one of one of Shylock's lines. It's just what a time to be alive. <laughs> it's great. I'm having a dandy of a time here. <laughs> um, so you changed some. You were able to change some things around to be mm-hmm. a bit more like conscious of the moment. And uh, how how did that work? How well did it translate for your audience, for your actors? Like, how did that alter the the chemistry of the show itself? I thought it, it translated very well for the actors. Um, but I suppose I have more insight on that because I'm with them for the process. Sure. And they're talking out their lines and talking out their motivations. Actually, we would have discussions about how, because we, ha- you know, it's like there's the older couple and the younger couple. So we had two different kind of generations of actors involved. Um, and we had an intimacy director brought in. It was really interesting hearing the older actors talk about like, Never would have even thought of this before. So you were so you were working on the technical side uh, for this show. You worked on the technical side for uh, Romeo for our Romeo and mm-hmm. Juliet as well. But you're also an actor in your own right. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember actually when we interviewed you. I was uh, I was curious because you also had like this body of acting work, but mm-hmm. it seems like you're doing more technical things lately. Where yes. does where's that interest come from? It's a mix. Part mm-hmm. of it's practicality. I'm a white, average-sized brunette girl. <laughs> like, there's a million actresses like that, and it's, uh, in terms of directing and stage managing, a little bit less female. Yeah. And so it's a little, there's more jobs. But also, I think my personality fits stage managing and directing a bit more than In what acting. way? I'm a little bit more reserved and a little bit more pulling people together to make an end product and helping them realize their ideas and pulling together lists and and organizational tidbits in the background. Whereas acting, sometimes you really need to be a bold personality. I think as I gotten older, I've felt that a little less, but I do remember like my ex-boyfriend was like, I don't think you should go into that because you don't have the personality to be an actress. What? <laughs> yeah, what does because that I'm, mean? What does that even mean? Because I'm not... Maybe uh, this is why he's your ex-boyfriend. <laughs> well, because I'm a little bit more shy. I'm not the person who's going to try to take the center of attention, which I don't necessarily think is actually a requirement for being an actress. Absolutely I think that not. comes from Absolutely a very outside not. personality. Not even a little bit, yeah. Sometimes the only way you can express yourself is by yeah. being in someone else's shoes. Exactly. I like working within boxes and I like being given permission as a person hmm. and as an actress. If When I act and someone gives me parameters, I feel like I can go so much further and it's a much more comfortable space for me to work in. I don't like setting my own boundaries because I have this real sense of other people and other people I'm working with. So I just like being given boundaries, which doesn't always happen mm-hmm. when you act. Whereas in stage management and directing, 
there's kind of these natural boundaries written in and then you right. give the boundaries to other people. Has that always been a part of your personality? Is that- It's always been a part of my personality. I've just recently started being able to articulate it. Interesting. Because I remember, I have a distinct memory of like my first real connection with this is I was Sarah in Guys and Dolls in my eighth grade production and I was really struggling with playing drunk. And and a Did you not had enough life experience yet, <laughs> yeah. at thirteen. You actually, a, not yet. You weren't a you lush at thirteen. You got to get out and live more, man. <laughs> I know. I started too late. <laughs> um, but yeah, I had a, uh, the drunk scene and like the flirtation. But as soon as they're like, "Well, this is you can do this, this." Like, you're okay to sit on his lap here. You're okay to do this. It was like, oh, okay. And I had those boundaries. I had that permission, and then it was fine. It's like as soon as I'm given that, this is okay way to touch you. This is an okay thing to do. Mm-hmm. I'm comfortable with it. So on that, um, intimacy direction, which is clearly such an amazing and mm-hmm. uh, important and very spoken about thing right now, you mentioned that you had one on this production. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about, uh, what that looked like, who the intimacy director was, and then also, you know, cause we also attempted to bring those principles in mm-hmm. without an intimacy director per se in Romeo and Juliet, and how what uh, what things were really assisted by having that presence in the room? Yeah. So um, his name is Marcus, and I really really enjoyed having him come in. I think the other actors did too. They did a couple of exercises first, like pairing off and going through different types of touches, and also this like yes, no game about taking each other's places, and then doing things like that. And then he would break it down and analyze like, well, why did you feel uncomfortable saying no? to someone taking your spot. It's that simple. It's that, or why did you feel comfortable saying no to me? Like when they did that game, the only person anybody else said no to was him. They didn't say no to any of each other. And he was like, well, just kind of breaking down why that is and what is stopping you from being comfortable saying no and when it, permission happens. Um, we did that exact, I uh, did a workshop on intimacy in original practices and Shakespeare uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, the intimacy director we were working with is named Ashley White, who's all, it sounds like Marcus might be mm-hmm. involved with IDI. Yeah. Um, which is kind of the main intimacy director mm-hmm. program right now. We did the exact same game and it was so fascinating. And what's interesting is that there were also people in the group who were like, my, my instinct is to say no though. I wasn't fighting, pleasing people. I, I kept finding it hard to, to say yes and give up space. and Fascinating. But yeah. then they were beating themselves up for it. And the point for them was like, why are you upset about that? Yeah. It's just yes or no. It's just taking places in a circle. Exa- no, that was exactly it. As soon as someone did say no, they apologize. And he's like, why are you apologizing? There's n- literally nothing wrong with saying no and like breaking those ideas down. Um, it's 50% of the creative <laughs> possibility of the game. Yeah. It is in the instructions that you are allowed to do that. But we have such a hard time with that. Yeah, and then they had games where you, you were paired with a partner and you had to ask the other person, can I touch, can I tickle the side of your cheek? You know, different things. And they could either say yes or no. Mm-hmm. And to also purposely do one that you don't think they're going to say yes to and try to see how it happens with that. And there's a lot of laughter. There's a lot of uncomfortable giggling. And you could definitely, this is really where it became clear, the different generational thing. I mean, everybody was very open to it and liked learning from it, but you could tell that some of our older actors, not that they didn't think it was important, but that it was very much 
making them question past ways they've behaved, past things that they have to think about. Uh-huh. It's interesting. We had different, because I really noticed this compared to how we did it with Romeo and Juliet, um, is that it was very much in this production, they didn't want to make it a choreography mm-hmm. in terms of do it for this long, this many seconds at this intensity. It was more, these are my boundaries that I don't want to cross. This is the general shape that we're going to do. Did they do containers? I don't think so. What's that? Ash- so uh, one of the things that Ashley was introducing, which is an IDI thing uh, that I had heard about but hadn't worked with yet. Mm-hmm. The idea of the container is like, uh, may I touch you? Yeah. So uh, you might say that I've just met you, Monty, today. We, we have to play lovers, but uh, I feel totally safe with you touching anywhere from my elbow to my shoulder. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not, like, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to be offended. I'm not going to feel like I'm being assaulted. I'm mm-hmm. not going to feel like you, as long as you're in that zone, you're pretty, you're pretty good to go. Uh, right. And so then like you, without blocking anything, you could actually yeah. have some responsiveness and like, mm-hmm. I know that I'm safe as long as I don't move my hand anywhere else. Mm-hmm. You have the, and, and, and in the moment that it goes outside of that boundary, you also know that this actor is out of line. And without you, you don't have to feel uncomfortable. It's just like, oh, that's not what we agreed upon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was like, that totally, like, that seemed like such a beautiful mid-ground yeah. to me of, of a choreographed thing and the, this infinite room for spontaneity and yep. play. That was essentially it. I don't think he called it containers, but it was that exact idea of this is where you're allowed to touch me. And within that, that's where we explore. Yep, exactly. Because they wanted to be able to keep, not quite improv, but keep a freshness and ability to not feel like they, they were doing one, two, three steps. The reason this cropped up for me was you mentioning eighth grade and you said being given the structure of being told to sit on someone's lap. Mm-hmm. Then that permission is given, that ex- expectation and trust yeah. and respect is put specifically in place. And I feel like particularly working in like the improvisational way that we do, it's so interesting in the intimacy stuff that it, even outside of intimate moments, it can create a world of specificity and trust that allows for much bolder play and experimentation. It's funny to me, or I find it interesting that you found your way into this production that was, it sounds like very focused on making sure that there was a structure and a boundary in place when that seems to be the direction that your own creative process Mm -hmm. is going, that you naturally, uh, that you gravitated toward that project. I want to talk a little bit more about what you were saying earlier that you came to direction and stage management and sort of working behind the curtain as a means of practicality. So you... Well, so that's not totally fair. I didn't okay. come to it like that. Mm-hmm. I just decided to pursue it more as a career because of that. Interesting. Okay. I came to it in co- in my senior year of high school. Now that I'm thinking about it, it was actually because it was an easier way for me to have more power and more involvement without being dependent on someone casting. Uh-huh. Now the real picture comes out. <laughs> there it is. Maybe just that. It's all about the lust It's for all about power. the power. <laughs> and was that, uh, uh, in high school, was that directing or was that stage manager? Directing. I was the assistant director for our last two years. Oh, awesome. Did you, uh, did you study directing and stage management after high school, like in college? And- no, I, I ran a student theater company. Um, really? Yes. And like I was chair starting my sophomore year. Uh, no, sorry, my junior year. I was on the board starting my sophomore year. And I directed and I produced for them. But I didn't study, like I didn't take classes besides, you know, a lighting design class I did mm-hmm. for a certain, you know, credit. I was a communications major. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you did communications uh, for your undergrad. Mm-hmm. And then we've talked, of, uh, we've talked before about how you 
got your master's abroad mm-hmm. in London, right? Yes. Studying what? Film. It was okay. The film studies department. Interesting. Um, and just, not, um, it wasn't, it's theory-based, more academic-based, okay. uh, not practical. It wasn't like an MFA. So even even then there's that, that recurring theme of boundaries. It's like we're going to be delving into film, but it's going to be more of a, it's going to be more of an academic discussion, not so much like acting for film and TV, like not acting for the camera. Right. It's very much just like analyzing how to craft those mm-hmm. particular stories. Why was that more interesting to you? I guess in part it's just because I, I, even though I kn- knew of MFAs, it didn't really quite cross my mind. And because I was always an academic, I always tested well, I always enjoyed writing, I enjoyed research. So in terms of pursuing a career that seemed probably prestigious enough and credible enough to suit like my parents and things like that. Becoming a professor and a, having a doctorate seemed more viable and more on that route hmm. than getting an MFA. To, I, I don't know. I, I guess just part of me didn't understand getting an MFA right out of college. and so, like I, In my mind, it was if I wanted to pursue production – I would get a job in production. At that point, mm-hmm. then the goal being, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get that PhD. I'm gonna be a professor of film mm-hmm. studies. What, what angle or aspect of studying film was so compelling to you? I loved critical analysis and bringing in gender and sexuality and identity politics. I liked under. It was actually kind of calls back to the communications background where you see how media affects mass society. This idea that what we put on screen and how we put it on screen can shape our society and how society shapes what we put on screen and that by play and what that means for how we accept people and how we view sex, how we view relationships, how we view gender. Is that still applying to your work today? Do you, do you find ways to be able to explore that? More and more. Yeah, I think so. I think it helps being in New York and I think it helps surrounding myself with people who are open-minded and have different ideas about gender and sexuality. At least having, because a lot of what I read opened my mind up to, if not understanding better, to recognizing how much I didn't understand. Hmm. And I think that really helps going into different productions and working with different people. Yeah, I mean, especially as a director, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, both as an actor, the worst experiences I've had working with a director, and as an audience member, the worst productions I've seen. Mm-hmm. Feels like our directors who feel like they understand exactly how the world should work, right. yeah. exactly <laughs> what the moral should be, rather than the play being an investigation, even for the captain of the ship. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I usually, when I directed stuff in the past, I usually had ideas about what I wanted to say, but I didn't have the path to it locked down. And I very much am a proponent of letting my actors have leeway and tell the story. And I want to know what they feel in the character because I'm looking at the big picture. I'm not delving into one character in as much depth that that, as that actor better be. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to know what their comfort is and I want to know what they feel right doing and what they can bring to production. What's interesting to me about that is you said part of the reason that you were drawn to the production side of things is you felt more comfortable with a set of boundaries or structures in Mm -hmm. place. So when you're running a room, what steps do you take with your actors to make sure that they feel safe and that there are a set of boundaries in place for them. Are there specific things that you like to do when it's your room? Anything that like anything that you like to address, set up? Can I also add to that and open mm-hmm. it up to, in addition to those things, what you were also describing in terms of increasing their uh, ability to have 
real shaping hands in the story? Like, mm-hmm. how do you empower them mm-hmm. to take some more of that responsibility onto their own shoulders? I've always tried, especially as stage manager for smaller productions, because I feel like that's when I probably have the most authority. I a lot of it's verbal. It's not really step by step thing. It's I, I basically if something comes up that it looks like might be questionable, I I ask them their opinion. I talk about. It. I just try to create an environment where they feel that they know I'm going to care about something like that. Um, so it's not really a step-by-step thing so much as when things come up, even if it's a little thing, make sure I ask what their thoughts are on it. And if they're comfortable with something, stopping something before it happened, like if we're about to go into a kiss scene or something, stopping and talking to about, just kind of making sure I insert a dialogue of, that things are not set in stone and should be talked about and conversational. You are habitualizing an environment of communication mm-hmm. and accessibility. Yeah. Making sure that everybody knows that you are a person, if not the mm-hmm. person in some cases that they can come to mm-hmm. and that they are encouraged to to do so. Yeah. What other positive impacts have you seen that permeate a room once you've set up that kind of culture and environment? People just relax and are willing to explore more. I think when people feel that they have someone they can go to outside of the action of it who doesn't have that creative investment, I think. Right, because your, your only goal is that the show is great. Yeah. Whereas everyone else may be like, I have this thing I want to say with yeah. this element that I'm doing. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And then I think once you have that, I mean, everyone's different, but I think for a lot of people, once you have that, you're more comfortable expressing yourself, you're more comfortable trying new things because you know that there is that person there who will put a stop to something if it's going too far or if it's not what everyone's comfortable with. You also have, I mean, it's not just about your own comfort zone. I feel like a lot of people are more concerned about pushing other people's comfort zone and not realizing. And so having, knowing that there's someone else there who will stand up for the other people makes you more um, able to push other people's boundaries and to explore things with someone else because you know that they also are protected and what you're doing isn't bad. A lot of people aren't going to jump unless there's a safety net there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. When it comes to your nature to uh, to be a bit more reserved and mm-hmm. like shy at first, how do you how do you square that with the position uh, that you take on in these productions as somebody whose job it is to directly resolve conflict? Yeah, that's hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I always I had shied away from stage management for a while because I didn't think I had the personality. Um, in terms of all of the stage managers I met in college were very type A, very, I don't want to say confrontational because it wasn't a negative thing, but they had no problem telling you exactly what you needed to do and when and how and where to go. Like very overt, very not shy about mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And because I'm not that, I was like, oh, they're going to run all over me. And I'm finding that's not true. <laughs> you don't have to be that. It actually, in a lot of ways, is much more pleasant for everybody when... You're, you have to be organized. You have to know what needs to happen when. But you can do so in a way that is not overly strict and overly demanding. And it actually feels like it creates a much nicer working environment. Look, you have to be able to think on your feet and pull the trigger with stage management because when things go wrong, unfortunately, I don't have 24 hours to solve how when the like the curtain doesn't go, you know, stuff like that. Right. Um, but those aren't as 
comment are as stressful as we think they need to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, actually being relaxed and just thorough makes for those much less. Um, those mistakes happen much less. I will say I've noticed I've started using my, I, I've since stage managing, I have actually become more confident and bold in my day-to-day life. Yeah. I've started using my stage manager voice to corral my drunk friends. Please tell, can you, can you please give us an example? <laughs> All right, you guys, you are going to listen to me right now. All right, we're going to go up down the street. So two blocks left. I'm not even saying words, but I was just remembering. If I were drunk, I would have believed those were words. If I were, thank goodness I'm not. The actor instinct in me was like, thank you, two blocks. (laughs) Thank you, two blocks. (laughs) Walk us through a little bit what your ideal ideal room looks like. Like you are the captain of this particular ship. What kind of work is it? What kind of people are you working with? What kind of environment are you trying to foster? And um, how do you... Or do you think about the way to bridge the your own internal gap mm-hmm. with balancing the academic insight and the act of actually playing and experimenting through a particular set of boundaries? So I am definitely an analysis-based director. It's It probably pulls in from my academic roots, um, but that's always how I used to run my rehearsal rooms is I would start off with a um, a table read and then really break down motivations and character backgrounds, a lot of talking to the actors about what their ideas are, why we're hitting these spots, what um, what we want the show to say. Maybe not all up front. A lot of that's more breaking things down overall and getting a basis and then kind of seeing where we go to and explore. Mm-hmm. So, And I'm usually a... I don't like it when we stop every two seconds to get into uh, like an exact movement or this kind of blocking there, this kind of blocking there. I'm usually a let's play out the scene once, talk about it. If I have a specific direction, if I have, if I ever have a specific movement, I will let you know. Um, I'm you actually, that's not, it's a mix, but usually what I'll do is I'll, um, give them positions and have them run through. And then if I want something to change, maybe stop them then. But- Thank God for you, Becca. <laughs> I've been in a couple of rooms recently, not professional rooms, where it has been this like every comma, mm-hmm. it's stop, shout, go back, do it, go back, do it, go back, do it. And it's like, for me, I'm like, there was nothing, there was no way in which to stifle anything that I have to actually bring to your mm-hmm. vision more than doing that. Like I'm just trying to like, like do that level of the video game that I've done seven times and can I jump at the right time and am I doing that? Right. No, it was like I I had an experience recently was similar and it wasn't, I was giving exact movements and exact bits and I hate that. If you have a bit you want to do, I'm all for it. Like as a director, because part of that is what you're giving. You you do have ideas um, about something funny or like a bit or something or choreography that is part of the job. But it's also seeing what other people want to do and, and can bring to the role as well. There's a reason I cast you and hired you and speak not because I thought you'd give me word for word what I have in my mind. It's because I only have a vague outline in my mind and I want you to fill it in with your ideas. So yeah, it's a lot of, I, t- I tend to talk things out. I tend to, um, yeah, do a mix of 
experiment and talk things out. So all all this amazing stuff that you're doing and with all of the the thoughtfulness that comes behind it mm-hmm. from both who you are, how your brain works and your background in academia. If you got to pick the you five years from right now, what would that person be doing? Like how, what would the balance look like when you are having fully full financial security and safety and you get to choose jobs not based upon which one helps you get them groceries, but (laughs) uh, purely what feeds your soul. What would that look like, do you think? I definitely want a hybrid career because I like doing multiple things. I love – I would want to act in some film or television. I love – that's really what I love doing, Um, specifically some kind of – fantasy, supernatural, sci-fi kind of thing. I'd like the fantastical, the dreamlike, the things I would never experience otherwise. And I also find that they tend to be great platforms for kind of semi-angsty, like, (laughs) emotionality. (laughs) Like, because you can. In these extreme worlds, you can go have these extreme reactions and personas that you don't have to – a smart-talking political show is fascinating and fun and witty and funny, but – it's also controlled and very much like day-to-day life and worrying about how you appear and you have to be these proper set lines. First fantasy has a little bit of that effervescence, uh, like fluidity that you don't always come across in life. Um, and I would definitely want to be directing more. I love stage managing, but I, I miss directing. Becca, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank if you any of you out there really me. want to work with her, I would suggest that you write a darkly comic <laughs> fantasy musical. Yeah. Yes, please send me all your songs. When Amber, they, I think you can do this. When <laughs> people send you their dark comic musicals, where on the internet can they find you? My Instagram and Twitter is Becca underscore K1017. There it is. Yeah. Okay. So now we come to the portion of the show where we read your listener responses to the previous episode and then offer our recommendations for things that we are playing, reading, writing, just media that we are consuming that we find interesting that we thought you should know about too. Monty, why don't you start us off? So this week, surprise, surprise, our wonderful dear friend Amber Elby, who is at Amber Elby on Twitter, tweets out that because only those who live stream the This Would Know podcast on Patreon can see my comments, I decided to tweet a photo of this one. I added the words, a photo. Then she puts in parentheses, y'all should support at Rude Grooms on Patreon to join the conversation. And I personally agree. Do you agree, Daniel? I agree. Great. Awesome. Patreon.com slash Rude Grooms. Join us. Watch the live stream. Then the photo that she includes is hashtag Mr. Amber LB, trademark Daniel Kemper, said he wants to see the Cats trailer with the Mandalorian sound dubbed over it. Oh my God. So here's the deal. I don't think it exists yet. I'm going to do a search and make sure it doesn't. If it doesn't, I have to drive to North Carolina and back here two more times because I'm currently uh, having the extraordinary joy of directing a play of mine called Ruins at the Gilbert Theater in Fayetteville, North Carolina. So I don't have a whole lot of time, but I also, hashtag Mr. Amber Elby, want to see, but I also, hashtag Mr. Amber Elby, want to see that. So if it doesn't exist, and if I can find the time before next week's episode, I am vowing to you now, I will do it. Hold him accountable, people. Well, no, I've given myself several caveats. You won't know how long my drives take or how rehearsals are going. Hold him accountable, people. God damn it. 
This is why I hate you, Daniel. <laughs> what are your recommendations this week, asshole? Uh, I actually, so last week I recommended a book. The week before I recommended a TV show. This week I am going to recommend both because they are adaptations of the same thing. I'm going to recommend both the Netflix show and the book from which it was adapted, The Haunting of Hill House. If you have, if you've oh, not yeah. seen it, if you've not seen the show on Netflix, it is fantastic. So it good. is super good. It's super creepy and really unnerving. I loved it so much that I went out and bought the book by Shirley Jackson after seeing the series. And the book, the book is amazing. The eh? book is amazing and entirely different. Mm-hmm. Such a different tone. Is it episode six that has that track? It's like not quite one. It's like three shots for the whole episode. Is that episode six or episode seven? I can't remember exactly. I think that's the best made episode of television I've ever seen, just from a technical standpoint. In any case, the show is phenomenal. The book is incredible. And the TV show takes from the source material, but manages to be its own thing so much so that in my mind, the book and the TV show are two separate things. 100%. Yeah. So I, I'm going to recommend The Haunting of Hill House in all of its different variations. Watch it and then read it or read it and then watch it. Do it in reverse order than the process that I did and then tweet or DM me on Instagram your reactions to having it done in that way. Hot twist. Have you seen the original Haunting of Hill House or The Haunting? No. Because um, So The Haunting is a film... With a lot of famous actors, the only one I can remember for sure is Catherine Zeta-Jones. Mm-hmm. That was not very well reviewed. However, I love this movie. Nice. And it has less to do with the book than the TV adaptation does, hmm. which is impressive. But the original film, Haunting of Hill House, is also extraordinary. So if you've enjoyed those two so far, I think you should, if you can, watch The Haunting last because it's, it's some 90s fun. Mm-hmm. And Catherine Zeta-Jones is just always like, she does She does not always choose great projects, but she's always wonderful whether the project is wonderful or not. Sure. Um, and it's perfect 90s horror. But uh, I would love to hear what you think about the original Challenge uh, accepted. Okay. Similarly, the first week I recommended a podcast. The second week I recommended a, a streaming television series. This week I am recommending a book, but I'm going to recommend in particular the audio book of... Malcolm Gladwell's newest, Talking to Strangers. I listened to this on the drive down to North Carolina to start rehearsals this past Friday. And I normally do a chapter of an audiobook and then four or five of my latest podcasts. Uh, That's what I tend to do when I'm doing long distance traveling. This book was so enthralling that I could not bring myself to choose something else to listen to. I started it and I did not stop until I was done, about nine and a half hours. And it is, I'm I'm a huge fan of Malcolm Gladwell, but even for those who are not, this book takes on, Talking to Strangers is, is, is a great title, but what it seems to me to really be about is our, in fact, our inability. Hmm to engage with humans whose experience we undermine through lack of exposure to empathy and experience. It it deals with so many 
so many stories that have caught my attention in the news over the past decade. And it brings out new facets of the, like some of them, uh, which I was very obsessed with. Sandra Bland, Jerry Sandusky, Amanda Knox, the list goes on and on and on. And it's consistently in, in stories that I thought I knew everything about. I was discovering new things and new elements, and it was consistently challenging me to reconsider things and to engage more with people and moments around myself. Um, if you're a fan of Malcolm Gladwell, I certainly can't recommend it highly enough, but even if you are not, I think this is the one Malcolm Gladwell that, uh, that I think everyone should listen to or read. And if you have anything to say to us uh, or recommendations to share, please email us at thiswouldknowatrootgrims.com or... Tweet at us on Twitter at thiswouldknow or DM us and follow us on Instagram at thiswouldknow. Also, tweet, hashtag, DM us on Twitter and on Instagram at Rude Grooms. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of This Wooden O presented by Rude Grooms. My name is Daniel Kemper. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Daniel Kemper. And I'm Montgomery Sutton. You can find me on Twitter at Montgomery Sutto because my name's too long. <laughs> and also on Instagram at Montgomery Sutton because they're really kind and don't care. Tune in for next episode where we'll be sitting down with actor and yoga teacher Rachel Schmeling. Bye, everybody. Becca's listening. I don't know. I'm going to listen. If you were on Patreon, you would see Becca's reaction. And then you <laughs> yeah. I'm very Becca's excited listen. about Becca's that. Becca's very happy that Rachel's going to be so here. So get on to patreon.com slash grooms. You can watch our live streams, chat with us. Uh, it's super fun, especially when there are no problems at all, like tonight, where there yeah. were no problems. Absolutely <laughs> flawless from a technical standpoint. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of This Wooden O, hosted and produced by Daniel Kemper and Montgomery Sutton. Original music is by Kara Arena. This Wooden O is brought to you by Rude Grooms, a Queens, New York-based theater company creating epically intimate theatrical experiences in public spaces, non-traditional venues, and new media. Learn more at rudegrooms.com or follow us on social media at Rude Grooms and at This Wooden O.